Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week from a man who said, Carol, I have been addicted to porn since I was 14 years old. It is my best friend. I don't know how to stop. Twelve-step groups aren't enough, Carol. I can't give this up. What would you advise? Well, I do believe that a lot of addicts would say the same thing. And at age 14, your brain is now really developed. And you're right, that compulsivity is intense. But I would challenge you. You know, I did ask you if you wanted to call into the show because I would challenge you and say, what uh, grade would you give your willingness to give it up? Because in this email, I didn't hear a willingness. And if you don't have a willingness, you're not at the right place to really work a strong program to develop new substitutes for your best friend, pornography. And that's just the truth. You know, I get that with addiction, whether it's food, whether it's gambling, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's chem sex, um, the brain has developed neural pathways that crave and request the stimulation that you've always had. But let's face it, with addiction, that ramps up and you need more and you want more. And that increases the intensity, 
the frequency and the novelty of new pornography. And you definitely need to have a structured program where you have a lot of recovery tools available to you. And yet, so many people that are in addiction, they really aren't ready. They are not ready to give it up. It's almost like they want the magic cure. I just sent a man home with my magic wand. And I did that on purpose. You know, he was an addict. And I said, you know what? So much of what you want is fantasy. So take this magic wand home and figure out what it would take to make your wish real. Because until you make it real, it's unlikely that you're going to have the insight needed to create the reality that you really want. And that's why so many addicts, they have to have deal-breaking behaviors. They need to be arrested. They need to be discovered. They need to be fired. Now, that's not me being judgmental. I really don't want those things to happen to my clients. But what I do know is that for many of my clients, until the consequences become so severe that my clients can no longer um, they can no longer appreciate the reward. Instead, it has brought them too much pain. And when that happens, they're ready for change. And so, where are you in your desire to change? Hopefully, the majority of the people that are listening um, are men and women who are in good recovery. They love podcasts because it gives them new information. It keeps things fresh. You know, I've got to say, tonight's show, I have never interviewed anybody about chemsex, which, of course, is the pairing of drugs and sexual behavior. It is rapidly escalating, and it's becoming epidemic. And it is a concern not only among men who have sex with men, but also with heterosexuals as well. And so we're going to be talking about that. Um, And, you know, this has been a problem on and off probably forever, but certainly since the early 70s. And so our guest tonight, Dr. David Fawcett, is an expert on chemsex, and as well as, you know, he has made it his mission to educate the public about issues that involve gay men. You know, he wrote a book called Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery which explores the intersection of gay men, drug use, and, of course, high-risk sexual behavior. 
And actually, it won the 2016 Best Nonfiction Literature by Pause Magazine. He also was recommended to me by two of my favorite people, Dr. Rob Weiss and also Tammy um, Wormhouse, because they both are working for a recovery program that is really, I think, instrumental in changing the education uh, as well as clinical programming. Seeking Integrity, LLC, uh, is a treatment program for fused drug and sexual behaviors, sex addiction, and other intimacy disorders. So I'm so happy to have Dr. Fawcett uh, join us tonight because he is frequently presenting workshops on health, addiction, HIV, and co-occurring disorders both in the U.S. and internationally. So that's always good, too. So back to willingness. What are you willing to do, right? Are you really willing to give it up? It's kind of like an overweight man or woman who says, I know I need to lose 100 pounds. Let me just eat this piece of cake tonight and I'll start tomorrow. Now, truth be known, obviously, uh, that chocolate cake is not as addictive as sex and drugs. But it still lights up the reward center in very, very similar ways. So we're going to be talking about, you know, the unique brain changes that occur and the best practices that have been developed to help clients improve their chances for prolonged abstinence, including the reintegration of healthy sex and intimacy. And you all know I'm all about emotional intimacy, right? I mean, that's what my book, Help, period, Her, period, Heal, period, an empathy workbook to help sex addicts help their partners heal is all about. And you know, I got the course. If you aren't a reader, or if you really want to see me teach, you can go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and you can get my online course that goes through. It takes you through the book step by step, and, you know, it's like I'm your instructor. And in actuality, I was a university teacher for a long, long time, and I'm a teacher for APSAS, that's the Partner Sensitive Association, that trains clinicians and coaches all over the world how to be partner sensitive. And I've got a really exciting thing. I know if you've been listening to my show, you know that I have been developing a course for partners. And um, this course for partners is either to help get them to post-traumatic growth, work them over there to that third phase of their recovery, or if you are in post-traumatic growth, it's to help you stay in post-traumatic growth. Um, and that course will also be offered at Sex Help with Carol the Coach. That's my website, www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach. And it is three days from being done. I mean, it's finished, but now I'm going through it with a fine-tooth comb and correcting typos. And you just would not believe 
how word does not always find the typos because they really aren't typos. They're differences in words. I can't tell you how many times I've corrected effective and affected. And um, you'd think I have that one down, but I don't. Not all the time. I've got it sitting right in front of me. Um, So I'm super excited about that. I want partners to have something that will help motivate them to feel good. And uh, this is such a dark field, and yet the clients I work with get better, and they feel happier, and I feel good for them. And so part of that is obviously educating you all so that you can find the right resources, you know, whether that's books or um, courses or treatment centers intensives. I mean, we've got a lot of good resources out there. We may be pioneers in the field, but we are rocking it when it comes to putting together tools and resources for you. So don't ever give up hope. There is always hope. Now, I know that the holidays in general, you know, that's a particularly tough time. And, you know, I probably have Oh, five to eight percent of my population of sex addicts and partners that I work with who, because of the holidays, have made the decision not to stay together. It was almost as if the holidays threw them into, A, that fantasy of what they really want, you know, that fairy tale life that they know they're never going to have. Once you've been wounded, there's a new normal. And so partners feel that way and addicts get discouraged because they've made changes, but it may not be enough. It may be too little, too late. And if that's the case, all I can say to you, whether you're an addict or a partner, is that you're 100% responsible for being accountable for your behavior. And if you can, you must do it with integrity. What does that mean? That means that there's no reason to get angry. There's no reason to accuse. It's almost as if you give the other person grace, but you have good boundaries, and you make sure that you're respected, and um, you respect the other person. And that's super important. When you have your own integrity, In some ways, even though your safety and security may rest in your relationship with your wife or your husband, it's also really important to understand and to accept that you need to handle tough situations with as much stability and respectfulness as possible. So if you had a hard holiday and you got angry and things didn't go well, I'm wondering what you can do to shift your thinking to promote better mental health as well as better relationship restoration if you are in a relationship. So I am just super excited to be talking with 
Dr. David Fawcett about chemsex. And so, Dr. Fawcett, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yes, well, you really have made it your mission to understand what chemsex is and to study that and to help clients and patients work through that. Um, And I got a lot of questions for you because this is obviously a topic that not everybody knows a lot about, but you primarily work with men who have sex with men who engage in chemsex. So I know that, at least from my perspective, We've seen this to be something that's very commonplace with gays, and yet you are seeing more and more of it amongst heterosexuals. Tell us a little bit about that change in it being something that gay, the gay population participated in, and now it expanding over to the heterosexual population. Right. Well, I think it's almost... Uh, more a matter of labels because chemsex has come been associated and my work has been with, with men who have sex with men, whether it's gay, bisexual, mm-hmm. transgender men, and the com- combination of the pairing of drugs and sex. But we do see that same behavior among, for example, heterosexual men who use cocaine and see a, an escort or uh, even sometimes people that use uh, marijuana to kind of disinhibit themselves sexually. So, uh, while the chemsex term refers often to gay men, it, the behavior really extends across the board. And we call it paired substance use and sexual behavior or fused substance use and sexual behavior. But it's any time the two are used in such a combination where they basically become a single entity, a single thing. They fuse really in the, in the brain uh, in terms of behavior and, and thought processes. So then that's what happens in the brain when sex is combined with drugs. It's, it's like it gets overly stimulated, it fuses, and the reward center is activated more than the normal. Exactly. You know, dopamine is the, the magic bullet here that, that, of course, works with a lot of drugs as well as sex and porn addiction. And when there's a, a phrase in... Neuroscience says when something fires together, it wires together, which simply means that if, if we do the same behaviors in the same intoxicated state over and over again, the brain fuses those things into one. And so the problem traditionally has been people thought, well, there's a drug issue, they'll get clean and sober, and the sex problems will kind of work themselves out. And we know that they don't because it's really all kind of one big addiction. And so... Um, for example, have men who give up their cocaine or their meth, and oftentimes their sexual activities and desire has been so fused with that intoxicated state, they lose all their sexual desire. It just goes away. And anytime they have a drug craving, they get a sex craving. If they get, a, if they get any kind of sexual stimulation, they get a drug craving. The two kind of go hand in hand. And that kind of untangling of those two is really what complicates recovery for people that experience this. Okay, so then how is this reflected in behavior, and what are the long-term consequences? So behaviorally, uh, what we see because of tolerance that we see in any addiction, whether it's sex or porn addiction or substance addiction, 
we see the development of tolerance and sort of the need for uh, increasing levels of stimulation or intensity. And what happens typically is that people start to combine different behaviors. Uh, they may, in terms of drug use, they may go from cocaine to meth, or they may go from smoking to injecting. Um, but behaviorally, and we see this with porn and, and sex addiction too, that need for intensity quickly, the, the body adapts, and so people start to escalate their behavior. So we typically see people not only increasing their drug use, but getting into um, maybe uh, more dangerous sexual scenarios, high-risk behaviors, taking chances they wouldn't have had before, doing things that might be rougher or more taboo, um, kind of moving and desperately kind of moving into um, some kind of level of stimulation to just get a little excitement. And there's this kind of escalation that really leads people down a, a very bad path because um, the consequences are often quite severe. I'm sorry, so tell our listening audience um, what that fusing is like. What would you say are some other high-risk behaviors that occur when you're mixing drugs and sex? So in this quest for intensity, um, uh -huh. people start to do all kinds of things. They may, um, what we do, what we call stacking behaviors, where they <clears throat> start to combine things that they hadn't combined before. Um, that can be an increase in drugs. Uh, it can be certain kinds of high-risk behaviors, cruising, um, maybe moving into more uh, high-risk things like public sex or acting out or into different kinds of uh, pornography that they might have not have experienced before. Um, and the, the frequency of these episodes tend to increase. And so people, it's this kind of rapid escalation of behaviors uh, that, um, first of all, lead to stimulate desire. Remember, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's all about the reward circuitry, and it's all about wanting more. And so by stoking up dopamine, people just kind of, people want more and more, um, and even when they're, and I've had clients who will have sex literally for four and five days, though, and oftentimes they say they're having sex for four and five days, they're looking at pornography, they're masturbating, they're um, kind of generally in this zone, uh, oftentimes with drugs on board, uh, but they're in this state, and uh, they can exist in that area for a long time, and even though they may have an orgasm, it doesn't provide the relief that it normally would. Normally, when we have an orgasm, physiologically, we experience kind of a, a relief. There's a, a period of um, resetting of the body. And oftentimes, when the levels of desire are stoked up to those high levels, uh, even an orgasm won't satisfy it. So people will want more and more, even though their bodies are spent. And so uh, it, there's a level of desperation that can, that can kick in. 
Well, absolutely. And I would think that your population, since you're an expert in this field and probably receive a lot of referrals specifically on this, I would think that you would see more fatalities and more near-death experiences because of that high-risk behavior. Well, and I think that's probably true, unfortunately. I think, um, first of all, among gay men who use methamphetamine and practice chemsex, over 50% live with HIV or will have HIV. So there's a lot of high-risk sex. When you're in that state, uh, it's not all about planning or being careful or making good choices. And so um, people take high-risk behaviors and, and don't protect themselves. Uh, even guys that are already living with HIV uh, don't take their HIV meds because they're so focused on on the next kind of fix. They don't even drink water. We have, I've had clients come in with kidney damage because they didn't drink for four or five days. They were just so caught up in the porn or the sex or the drug use. Um, but we also see uh, a lot of overdoses, uh, both with methamphetamine, which can uh, cause cardiovascular problems, pulmonary hypertension, stroke, heart attack, and among some of the other drugs that are commonly used with chemsex, uh, the most notoriously dangerous is a drug called GHB, which is gamma-hydroxybutyrate, which is uh, very similar to rohypnol, the date rape drug, and it actually causes respiratory failure, and it's very easy to move from um, what you think is going to be a great high to an overdose. It's a liquid drug, and so you kind of mix it on the fly with water, and it's extremely easy to overdose. And so um, we do see a lot of drug-related uh, problems, complications, fatalities, along with the high-risk behavior. Um, that rohypnol, by the way, <clears throat> the GHB drug, we, among my clients, a lot of gay men, I see a lot of sexual assault happening um, because they're in a really an impaired state. And this is something that a lot of these guys are ashamed of and don't want to talk about, uh, but it's really happening quite commonly. So uh, there's a whole kind of set of um, consequences here that are, are uh, dangerous and unpleasant. Well, yes, and I would imagine very auto-exacerbating because obviously as they get into more and more high-risk behaviors and then contract AIDS or HIV at least and and put themselves in dark situations, they become more and more depressed, which makes them have less hope and want to change less. So what do you do for clientele that that have experienced this fusion and are addicted to chemsex? How do you treat them? Well, Carrie, you're exactly right about the the hopelessness. You know, once... The, the unfortunate thing about methamphetamine, uh, particularly, is that it it really is it's neurotoxic. So it's uh, not only does it stimulate the reward circuitry with all this dopamine release, but it gradually destroys those dopamine receptors in the brain. And without proper dopamine distribution, we have no ability to control our moods. And so gradually, people become very, very depressed. There's a, a common expression in weekend warriors who may start partying on Thursday and party hard on Friday, Saturday, and kind of put the brakes on Sunday and try to crawl back to their lives on, on Monday, but they call it Tuesdays Suicide Tuesdays. And they call it that because their dopamine is totally depleted. 
they're totally depressed and really feeling quite hopeless and in despair. And you combine that, as, as you know, with the, the addictive cycle for sex addiction, there's that despair anyway after on the kind of the tail end of an acting out cycle, but that you combine that with this um, brain state, it's even that more profound. And so the first thing we do with treatment is to really explain what's happening in the brain because a lot of guys uh, get really this, this sense of hopelessness that they'll never get better. And they do get better, but that reward circuitry does rewire, but it takes time. So I think a lot of it is education, educating the clients that some of this process is going to require months. Uh, we give them tools um, to have that not only the awareness of what's happening in their brains, but to really help them keep from being triggered. Uh, oftentimes their sexual desire goes away with the drug. And uh, much in sex addiction, when we talk about like a reboot, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it kind of takes that sexual compulsivity off the table for a while and gives guys a chance to really focus on their recovery before they have start have to dealing with being uh, sexually, uh, having sexual cravings. And by that time, we can start to give them tools to sort of manage those, much the same way we do for sex addiction with uh, different awareness, different replacing uh, some of those unhealthy behaviors with, with more sort of outer circle, outer boundary kinds of behaviors and sort of gradually allowing them to, to get back on board. I think one of the things we don't want to do is take away the drugs, focus on the drug use, and then assume the sexual problems will take care of themselves. Because just diagnostically, anybody who kind of hits bottom with this paired drug use and sexual behavior or, or chemsex is by definition really a sex addict. And we have to employ all the traditional sex addiction recovery principles as well. And so it's really combining, it's kind of a blend of substance use and sex addiction treatment into one. And recognizing that uh, takes a long time for people. Well, and so are there specialized groups, you know, uh, you know I'm thinking 12-step groups specifically for chemsex, you know, a little bit of NA with uh, SAA. Yeah, um, the the only thing that comes close um, mm-hmm. is a fellowship called Crystal Meth Anonymous CMA, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they began uh, specifically because a lot of the traditional uh, drug fellowships like NA or AA, um, as you know, they don't really want to hear much about sex talk. And um, so we needed a place where people could talk about things like they would in an S meeting along with the drug use. And, of course, these meetings have to be very carefully controlled, just like any well-run meeting. It can't be triggering language. It can't be graphic. But it allows people a place to um, talk about the issues in one one way, in one place in space. And so um, – that's one area. Now, as I say, there are um, guys who don't use methamphetamine who experience uh, chem sex or fused uh, drug use and sex. And by the way, there's women as well. Um, a lot of women now are using methamphetamine and combining a sexual behavior, and they meet all the criteria for this uh, paired drug use and sexual behavior. So we don't really have a specific fellowship. CMA is probably the closest. I always, though, uh, caution my clients because CMA is a new fellowship. Um, in some areas, 
where it's been around for a long time, urban areas mostly. Uh, it's a, mm-hmm. There's a lot of seniority. There's a lot of recovery. But also you can find meetings where there's not much recovery at all. And so I often tend or ask my clients to maybe merge or combine uh, NA with some CMA, with some S meetings, and kind of build their own program that, that feels comfortable depending on the fellowships that are available to them where they live. Yeah, I think that's so smart. So for the clinicians that are listening right now, it's so important to know the health of the BS group and to understand yes. how much recovery is in that and, and how it's run, you know, because obviously right. we're talking about the fact that this is going to require some specialized treatment and you do believe that chemsex recovery differs from other types of recovery. Is that not true? I do, in that it just, it's really this blend of these two phenomenon. And I think just by nature of our training, uh, we tend to be trained in, in the drugs or the, or the sex addiction, but not necessarily both. And I think the, the, the way recovery unfolds um, just largely due to the differences in the brain that I spoke of, um, it's a, a little bit of a different phenomenon that I think you have to kind of walk both sides, keep a very careful balance, um, manage the triggers that can happen with drug use, manage the changes in the arousal template that has occurred. Um, and oftentimes uh, clients will go sometimes months without being able to feel any sexual desire. And um, we really, I'm a, I'm a sex therapist as well, and we try to really reintegrate healthy sexuality back into their recovery. And that, and just like probably every sex addiction, uh, there's a lot of intimacy issues that underlie chemsex. And uh, those things, and trauma, by the way, of course, uh, those things really have to start to be addressed. What, what I take caution with is starting that deeper trauma work too soon. Um, I find these guys, because of the changes in the brain, here's an example, um, amphetamines, cocaine, meth particularly, even the Adderall when it's abused, mm-hmm. uh, make changes in the brain. They increase visual memory. So people become really heightened uh, to visual triggers. Uh, and that's why porn is so problematic, uh, even in recovery. It may not have been their primary issue, but... I always really want to take a careful look at pornography use because it's hypnotic. It puts them into a trance, and it can very easily cause them to be triggered. But what happens while that visual memory is increased, their verbal memory is decreased. And that means simply that people have a lot of trouble with abstract thinking. Um, I had a, a CEO of a major company finally with two years of recovery from methamphetamine say, I could read a book. And he literally couldn't kind of – was. it's like ADHD uh, – he couldn't kind of put words together and thoughts together. And so if we as therapists start to jump in too soon with cognitive, traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, it can be very frustrating and kind of overwhelming. Um, if we um, do too many kind of visual cues that are, or don't have sensitivity to it. If, um, I've had guys uh, get really triggered by seeing a picture of uh, a hypodermic needle or a bag of drugs in a newspaper article. So just to be sensitive to all that sort of particular visual triggering, it really helps people kind of walk through those early kind of very fragile times in recovery. And of course, to help them 
with that hopelessness and that depression because there is this uh, what therapists call anhedonia, this inability to feel pleasure. And that does get better, as I say. And I'm, my, I'm like the cheerleader of hope here because I've seen it. I've seen guys get better. It, I know it passes, but when you're in it, it seems like it's just never going to end, that grayness. Yeah, I would think so. And that's why having an expert on one's team like you will really help them to have more hope than perhaps the average therapist or a therapist that moves in too quickly to something that they can't even begin to process at the present time. Now, take us through the steps a little bit, because I would assume that when you're working with people who require chem sex recovery, um, that it is for populations across the board. I mean, let's be it gay or heterosexuals, it doesn't, it's not one specific income. It's not one type of profiling, if you will. Do you find that to be true, that it's very diversified? Absolutely. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I have a, I have a CEO from a major company. Uh, most of the years I, when I did a private practice, uh, there were a lot of people who were on disability. And um, like as a sex addiction, any kind of boredom or open space can be triggering and uh, these are a lot of, uh, in that case, young gay men who are on disability, often for HIV, um, who really had too much time on their hands, and they're kind of trapped in this low-income existence, um, but they were suffering with meth as severely as people who could, you know, afford mountains of this stuff um, in their kitchen. So, yeah, it goes across the board. Um, and as I say, both men and women, although we tend to see more men these days, I think we're going to start recognizing it more across the board among all populations. But socioeconomically, well, would, educationally, income, everything, yes, total broad spectrum. And I would assume that, you know, because there is different chemicals versus the sexual part of this disorder, that they have burned out their support systems because they've stolen from them, because They've, you know, they've just lived such a dark life that people are detached. And so they don't have the support that perhaps somebody would have if they were alcoholic or, um, you know, a porn addict per se, separate from any kind of chem sex. Uh, so you probably don't do as much family therapy or relational therapy um, because you, you're really spending time getting them straightened out. Yes, that's, that's very insightful because uh, especially with these amphetamine drugs, they're so powerful and they, they really become the primary relationship. And I, I, that's probably true of any addiction. But, but in, in these cases, uh, the addict will protect that relationship with the drug over everything else. And so most of the clients I get, um, by the time they get to me, um, really have burned every bridge. They've, they've lost their careers. They've lost their homes. They've lost uh, their friends. They've lost their spouses, their partners. Um, everyone, they've, everyone's just so over it that they're very, very isolated. And as you know, they're really the, one of the major healing factors in recovery is, is connection. And so um, oh, yeah. helping, helping these guys 
uh, and gals establish any kind of social network. They're just extremely isolated. And so, um, and feeling quite bitter about that. Uh, but unlike, for example, a, a sex addict whose partner is often highly involved, they may be incredibly angry and traumatized, but they're often very involved. Um, you don't see that so much with the chemsex client. They've really burned those bridges to the point where people have washed their hands. And that's really a sad statement. Well, I bet. And so obviously that too is um, different than other forms of recovery. Because I, I have to admit, just in working with sex addiction and partner betrayal, there is a special chemistry between a heterosexual couple or a gay couple that they want to have hope in each other and they aren't burnt out from it. I mean, they're terribly, terribly damaged, but they're not burnt out. And so these folks have a, a lot uh, fewer resources, if you will, to get them through. And, and then, again, if they don't have availability through fellowship and 12-step work that really speaks to them, what do you advise? I mean, are there online groups? Are there telephone groups? What's available? Well, yeah, I advise connection in any form possible. Um, mm -hmm. There are, um, of course, in-person groups, whether that's CMA, NAAA, some of the, the S fellowships around. Um, there are starting to be more and more uh, online support groups um, I work at CP Integrity with Rob Weiss, and we have a residential program for this. But we also have a site called TextAndRelationshipHealing.com, and we have numerous free online support groups each week where people can dial in. Um, I've also started uh, a chemsex group on a site called In the Room. So more and more, there's resources out there. But um, I think for someone who has really lost that level of social network, um, it's really important, if possible, I think to get into some kind of uh, structured living for a while where that structure okay. is provided. Um, and that can be a sober house. It can ideally it could be like a PHP or IOP program, but some kind of structure where they kind of get, get a, a social a family around them again and can sort of um, be re-nurtured. Um, because what one thing we know, I guess from any addict, but it seems so poignantly true with chemsex addicts, there's such um, self-loathing. And I think it's really hard for these guys, once the, the bubble breaks and they realize they have a problem and they're trying to find their way into recovery, the remorse and the level of shame is so profound that a lot of times they don't really feel worthy of recovery, feel worthy of social connection. And I think uh, as, as therapists, you know, we try to kind of hold that container for those people until they can feel it themselves. And, and so I think to try to create that in some form where they can kind of be held um, until they can sort of get their feet back on the ground. Um, oftentimes, though, if they're living on their own, if they're isolated, it's a really uphill climb because they're struggling with that loneliness and the isolation and the, the low self-worth and the hopelessness that in some part chemical. So um, it's a bad formula. 
So again, my message is always one: there's there's hope. It's it's really the the best predictor of recovery for chemsex is retention. You know, just keep coming back, keep doing what you're doing, um, keep showing up. That's that's the magic. Okay, and so you you've got this epidemic. It's getting worse and worse, and you're working with these folks to the best of your ability and they do have some 12 step support. What kinds of sex and intimacy recovery do you help them with when they are sober, when they are seeking support, when they do have connections? What I start with is um, really untangling the drugs, sex, and intimacy, because they're all kind of in a big ball. And sometimes uh, having any kind of sexual arousal can trigger a drug thought and, and so on. And so to really kind of sort that out, I try um, to really move people out of their heads. You know, the chemsex is all about fantasy. It's a, it's a head trip. It's about scripts and things in the arousal template, and I really try to move people down into different ways of experiencing sensuality. And so uh, that may be through breathing techniques. It may be getting in touch with their body. I really try to start to work with people to ask them, okay, what are you feeling and where are you feeling it? And I even use some of the old gestalt you know, give give that uh, pain in your chest a voice, and what is it saying? And, and just kind of getting getting out of their heads. Um, we uh, do a lot of sensate focus if there's um, a partner available to work with, uh, where it's a, it starts out with a, a non-sexual kind of intimacy communication exercise. Um, I really people are so quick to kind of want to fill the void with someone else. And I really try to slow that down and ask them to um, really develop a relationship with themselves and find out who they are and what they want and what they're about and do a lot of self-exploration in that way. And then when it starts time to kind of re-engage, we try to create a dating plan with, you know, starting with coffee dates or something small, something easy, um, even a phone call sometimes. Uh, just to sort of build and and then we process how was that you know how can we increase your tolerance for for the discomfort not even, instead of not even wanting to run from the room uh, what was going on there what was that feeling and and kind of working through to the point where they feel they can uh, engage more comfortably um, at increasing levels of of intimate behavior and ultimately sexual behavior. Um, I also try to mix populations, however that occurs, with couples, if I can do it, who have been in recovery a long time. Because um, as therapists, you know, we can tell people, this is what you'd expect and this is what I've seen. But I think the words of a peer who's gone down the path themselves are so much more powerful. And so having a couple who have five and six years of recovery who talk about having better sex than they ever could have had on drugs and how they did it. And those kind of um, stories 
uh, are really powerful for people. So I try to provide examples, real-life examples uh, of recovery for them. Well, I love that because you're really bringing it down to the basics, and that's where they need to start. And I'm sure their insecurities would help them um, get through the basics better than if we expected them to start dating. And I, like you, agree that people are not a replacement for drugs or alcohol or sex or chemicals. And so we do want connection, but we don't want it to be um, intense. And, and that would be dating or hooking up or being together. Right. Um, so it sounds like it's, you've got a very solid program. Now, if people wanted to find out more about chemsex recovery or as you talked about, um, Seeking Integrity has a program. Um, in the room, you said, offer some free free groups? Um, a site called intherooms.com. Uh, there's a chemsex group that I run myself uh, wow. on Tuesday evenings um, at 8 okay. Eastern, 5 Pacific. Um, and it's, people can drop in. It's free. Uh, it's, it's run like a meeting and people basically just bring their comments. Um, and then I'm also doing a twice a month consultation group for therapists who have questions or concerns about chemsex, just because I found there's so much confusion about it. So if they want to bring a case or bring a question, um, and those are on the second, fourth Wednesdays of the month, uh, at 2 PM Eastern, 11 Pacific, um, and all of these and are available are at Seeking free. Integrity. Those are also free, yes. The, the one for therapists, yeah. we ask that you register because it's a password-protected um, access, uh, but it's free. Um, but all this is available at SeekingIntegrity.com. You can find out more about those offerings. Um, and beyond that, uh, there's still kind of limited information. My book um, is called Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Men's Guide to Sex and Recovery. That really deals with this whole phenomenon of, of camp sex among the uh, MSM population. Uh, and hopefully soon, in the next year or so, we're going to have a lot more resources out there. But um, I had just seen so many people who uh, didn't really receive the treatment they needed by they're well-meaning therapists who just didn't quite understand the, the brain aspects of this and how in the long-range recovery aspects. So um, it's my kind of mission to, to get the word out about this and be as open and helpful as I can. Yes, and, and that shows. You, you can hear the passion in your voice as well. They're very, very practical. You're a sexologist. You have made it your mission to help people with, with chemsex and, and other types of disorders. So I so appreciate it. I want to remind people about your book. Tell us a little bit about your book. Thank you. The book is called Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery. And it grew out of my 20 years of work. There, When I started with this, there was no pathway for a therapist to follow. The book is geared both toward the recovery person and, and the clinician that's helping them. But it deals uh, in some detail in a very readable format, but some detail of the uh, neuroscience and that really explains uh, what's going on with, with amphetamines and the impact that has. 
Um, and then if I can also do just one other shameless plug, I was an executive producer of a documentary called Crystal City that follows eight um, gay men in recovery in New York City. Uh, NBC News just named it one of the 20 most important LGBT films of 2019. And um, I'm really proud of that. It's, it's available on Amazon Prime and it's called Crystal City. And also yeah, explains well, quite a bit be. about this phenomenon. Yeah, you should be proud of that. And it seems like everything you have done has won awards. I know your book won the 2016. I didn't know what POZ stood for. Do you know what that stands Uh, for? Yes. POZ is a very large HIV website and a magazine. And um, so that was really from um, the HIV world, really recognized uh, the role that uh, meth and chemsex play with HIV, both in new serial conversions and in the complications of people living with HIV. So really, they recognize the importance of that book, and that was the best nonfiction award for the, for that year from Paz. Yeah. Well, congratulations. It sounds like everything you're doing has taken a lot of hard work, but it is being recognized, and it's turning to gold. I mean, awards really speak to the qualities of the projects that you're taking on. So I so appreciate you doing this podcast and we've got to have you back on again because this isn't talked enough about. Now I'm from Indianapolis and we've got a terrible mess problem. So chemsex must be a problem and I just don't hear much about it and I'm not getting it in my office and I'm the only certified sexual addictions therapist out there. So what I know is that I need to educate myself better so that I can be um, a spokesperson for it, and uh, let's face it: when build it, and they will come, right? That's right. That's right. And I think yeah. you'll start seeing it now that you know to look for it. It's there. Yes, exactly. So, David Foster, thank you again. You tell Rob Weiss we said hello. As a matter of fact, right before you came on, he contacted me and said, "Hey, I'd like you to come do a podcast." I said, "Hey, I got to go. I am interviewing Dr. David Fawcett." So. <laughs> Um, it's a small world. You're in good company. That's funny. And you guys are geniuses. Thank you. And and Carol, I have a podcast of my own that I would love for you to be a guest on. So I'll be in touch with you about that. Excellent. I would love that. And so make it a good one, and we will talk soon. And thanks so much for educating our audience tonight. Thank you. Take care now. Uh huh. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. So that was Dr. David Fawcett. He's a social worker and a clinical sexologist. He's a PhD, vice president for clinical programming at Speaking Integrity, and is definitely an expert on chemsex, lust, men and meth, gay men's guides to sex and recovery, and he's considered um, a recovery expert when working with gay men. So just something interesting. I, I want to know more about it. And as we said, it's, it's reaching the heterosexual world too. So it's um, like everything else. It's expansive. And so thank you so much for uh, tuning in the show. And we will talk to you next week when we talk with Charlene Benson, who is uh, talking about how to get unstuck when you have goals and you want to change your life. 
how do you get past the inertia and really make your life happen? So we'll talk to you soon. And as I say at the end of every show, hey, there's only going to be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a great week.